Throughout the history of the human race, two things have remained consistent, questioning if there is a God and war. Now you might not feel like a conqueror who seeks world domination, but in the off chance you wake up tomorrow and feel your backyard isn't big enough, I'm sure some of this information could be useful. Because on today's episode, we explore the history of global conquest, learn the tips and tricks of the ages, and I even try to take over the world myself. I'm Ari Kagan, and you're listening to Things You Don't Need to Know. All right, so my producer told me that I have to make it really clear that this episode is about risk, like the board game risk. We're not actually taking over the real world. We're just um, talking about risk, the board game. Okay, now forget I said all that, and let's just get right back into the episode. So why might I, but a humble podcast host, need to take over the world? Well, to sell more ads, of course, but more seriously, every few months I play a game of risk with my friend Max and his whole family, and I've never actually won. So I was hoping that I could dive a little deeper into the history of taking over the world with the hope of winning one of these family board games. If you're not familiar with Risk, it's a game played on a standard 20 by 20 inch board. Wikipedia says that it's a strategy game of diplomacy, conflict, and conquest for two to six players. The actual rules are kind of long and a little bit complicated, so I won't get into it just yet. All you really need to know is that it's one of those whole day type games. And in my opinion, the best way to get certain family members really angry There's just something about getting wiped off the map that deeply hurts the human soul. I end up playing a full game a little later in this episode, but I feel like it's fitting that I let the players introduce themselves now. I'm Matt DeShanes. I played it like once. Maybe. I don't remember. I think we got in an argument and stopped. (laughs) That sounds that sounds very accurate. Um, this is this is Dan the Man, three-time Risk World Champion. Um, I've yet to be beaten, so. You actually stole what I was gonna say. I'm Max to Caesar, three-time world champion of making Dan leave and go cry. These clowns I call my friends are not world champion at anything. I've won the game a few times too, but mainly that's that's my biggest achievement. Dan is scowling at him across the table. <laughs> Keep in mind that Max bribed me with actual money last round to let him live. As you can see, it gets pretty heated. I'd like to point out the fact that the game hasn't even started yet. So before we roll the dice and begin battling on the dining room table, I want to take you back to about a week ago when I spoke to someone with an encyclopedic knowledge of world history. Oh, hi, I'm Robbie. I'm a history student. I've known Robbie for a long time. I've known him long enough for him to remember when I dropped out of school in eighth grade. Robbie's kind of my go-to guy for any anything. He's great with classical music, too. I would say that half the songs in this podcast are me humming him a tune and him being like, this is it. And I literally could never do it without him. Getting back to history, I would say that I probably know a little bit more history than I deserve to know. This is largely due to YouTube and more specifically John Green from Crash Course. One of the reoccurring themes in that show is the Mongolians. The interesting thing about the Mongolians is that they were actually the largest contiguous land empire of all time. I think that this is a really good place to start because who's better to learn from than one of history's greatest conquerors? The Mongols were horsemen who were so terrifyingly good on a horse with a bow that they would send a guy ahead and say, we're going to attack your city if you don't just give us the city. And people were so terrified, they just give them the city. They killed 10% of the world population. And I believe like a non-zero number percent of the world's population is related to Genghis Khan. Wow. Because he raped so many people. Yeesh. 0.5% of the male population of the world. 16 million people. Males. 16 million males. This means there are more 
males related to Genghis Khan than there are Jews. So how did they fall? How did, how did the Mongols uh, lose their empire? When you go from a small tribal system within Mongolia to the biggest land empire the world has ever seen in about 50 years, this is not sustainable. Just it's too big. They essentially split themselves into four, like the eastern, the western portions, and then Mongolia and China being their own, essentially. And then those fell on their own without too much influence. Even though the Mongolians were able to capture the largest contiguous landmass, they only lasted 162 years, which isn't all that great in empire terms. In fact, there's an Aldabra giant tortoise named Jonathan who's believed to be about 187, which makes sense because, as they always say, the tortoise beats the Mongolians. Sorry. Um, the point is, I'm going to try to take a lesson from each of history's great empires. The lesson I'm taking from the Mongols is don't spread yourself too thin. If you spread your armies too thin, you leave yourself very vulnerable to attack. As I'm expanding my territory on the risk board, I have to make sure that I have enough troops, or little wooden blocks, to actually hold my land more than once around the board. So now with a basic understanding of probably the most important concept to not immediately get wiped out, I sat down and we began the game. It's just occurred to me that I haven't actually explained how you play Risk, so I'm going to do that now. Risk is a game of intercontinental conquest. Played out on a cardboard flat earth consisting of six continents and 42 territories, each player receives a group of armies to begin the game. They then battle it out against everyone else's armies with the objective of conquering the entire world. There are a lot more rules, but I mean, they're just not really that important right now. We began the game, well, how every game of Risk begins, by placing our pieces around the board. Max, you got any comments on troop distribution? Honestly, this is probably the most even game I've ever seen with placing. I, no one has a stronghold at all. The biggest advantage that I could see was by Dan, who had two of Australia's four territories. I was sprinkled throughout the world. Max had a few countries in Asia, but it's kind of hard to take over there. And Matt had even smaller clusters than I did. The game got off to a thrilling start. I'm attacking you, and you're like, you're making the worst decision you could do, so. All right, well, good for you. Armies clashed. Tempers rose. That was a terrible roll. It was a perfectly fine. You see the thing roll on the thing? How am I supposed to predict that? <laughs> and Matt cheated. Number of cheats that have happened. Matt has done one already. <laughs> and after about an hour and a half of play, the board started to take shape. Although I had all my armies in North America, they were pretty well staffed, and I was about to start an attack. Matt had one army in each of the South American territories and a few in the South of North America. He had almost all of Europe, some of Africa, and one in Japan. Dan had quite a bit of Asia, and Max had one remaining army in South Africa. Matt's turn was next, and he just received a 25 army bonus for handing in his cards. But then he made a big mistake. Instead of fortifying his already weak territories, meaning he only had one or two armies on each one, he decided to put all of them on Iceland and launch an attack on my troops in North America. That's the sound of the dice rolling. It kind of sounds like cannon fire, so that's cool. Matt finished the round by pushing me all the way back to Alaska, my last territory, which I had about six armies on. Luckily, it was my turn to hand in cards, and Matt had wasted nearly all of his armies battling me across North America. He'd spread himself so thin that I easily took back everything. That's what I love about this game, is that it can change in an instant with the cards. You know, one person may be in the lead, but then someone gets a good trade-in, and they're wiped out. We'll be right back with more war after a word from our sponsors. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Oh, hello again. I hope you bought whatever I was selling you. Before we get back to my epic game of Risk, I wanted to share with you another case study on world domination. The Roman Empire lasted for almost 1,500 years, and at its largest encompassed nearly 5 million square kilometers. That being said, it's definitely worth mentioning that the United States is approximately 9.8 million square kilometers, so it's about double the size. However, the Roman Empire is in Western Europe, so... I think it's pretty impressive. Rome is probably the best example of a contiguous large empire that worked for a large space of time. A lot of this is down to the fact that they didn't expand too quickly. It wasn't one campaign. So they started with Italy, then they fought the Carthaginians, and they took over Carthage, they took over Greece, they took over Spain, they took over France. But they were able to rule based on kind of like American government when it comes, when you have states, like their governmental style was suited for provincial rule. Julius Caesar, before he became emperor, but not really, he never called himself emperor, he called himself princeps. Well, Augustus called himself princeps, which meant first citizen, because within Rome, the title of king was considered totalitarian and terrible, and they would kill people who called themselves that. So he called himself first citizen and made the Senate look like they made decisions when they really did. The main reason for his popularity was he was the governor of Gaul, current day France, and then took over Gaul. He killed about a million Gallic people, enslaved another million. And in order to make sure that his name was still known in Rome, he wrote the Gallic Wars, in which he refers to himself exclusively within the third person. That's right. He wrote the history book about himself, but he pretended like he didn't write it himself. It's a very clever bit of propaganda. When he's talking about the defeat of Vercingetorix, it's not I defeated Vercingetorix. It is Julius Caesar defeated Vercingetorix. This is genius. Even if I lose, I'll just, I'll just claim that I won. And whenever, like, Max says that he beat me in risk, I'll just say, no, no, you didn't. And over time, people will just think that I'm right. So how did Rome manage to stick around for so long? What they did was they would pay all of their neighbors to essentially be border troops for them. They were called, at the end of the empire, they were called Federati. So a lot of the Goths and like 600 who were protecting the Byzantines were not living in the borders, but they were being paid to essentially guard against larger threats. So they had next. They they were paying for buffer states. 
The concept of buffer states I think is going to be really useful to me, especially considering that part of risk is owning entire continents, which you get an extra army bonus for at the beginning of every turn. If I can place my armies in territories that are kind of right next to my main empire, not only will I be able to take away other people's attempts to get those extra armies from my continental bonus, but I'll have an extra layer of protection between my actual force and everything else. Back on the risk board, it was Max's turn, and he was in a real tough spot. He only had one territory, and he only had one army on that territory, but he had a trade-in, and after handing in his cards, he suddenly had 30 extra armies. Where should I put this? <laughs> Max promptly beat everyone out of Africa, and I saw an opportunity to utilize lesson number two. I had Brazil and South America, and Max had North Africa. There's a connector between the two, meaning you can either move your troops between the countries or battle someone across the hypothetical ocean. This seemed like a perfect scenario for buffer states, so I decided to make an alliance. I had quite a few troops in South America, and he had quite a few troops in Africa. So for us to work together, not attack each other, and collect that continental bonus of armies at the end of every turn, it was truly beneficial for everyone. Except the other players. So I feel like I've made good use of the two lessons so far, not spreading yourself too thin and creating buffer states, and I'm feeling pretty good about where I am on the board. Being that the next logical move was for me to take over Matt's territories in Europe, I figured now would be a good time to talk about people who tried that. The Germans. Angry mustache man himself. Whenever Germany has been united, the world has had a problem. And Robbie's not wrong. Don't believe me? Think about this. In 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. Germany was united. And less than a year later, they won the World Cup. Yeah, they didn't take over any countries, but they took over the pitch and they won on the day. And uh, I guess you could say they conquered the world in that sense. Contrary to popular belief, Germany did not start World War I. They were allies with Austria-Hungary, which meant they were actually the ones who had been transgressed upon. And then when they lost during the armistice, France was broke, and they decided that instead of trying to fix their own economy, they'd just make Germany pay to rebuild it. So it was an utterly ruined country due to the sanctions imposed upon it and bad leadership. There was an utter desire for revenge against the world because they felt that the world had wronged them. So what do they do? They decide to take over Europe. As we all know, they failed. I wouldn't say they failed miserably, but they failed pretty spectacularly. They were so concerned about certain things that actively hurt their war effort. Their ideology was so strong within every aspect of them that even their military intelligence was skewed. They destroyed more Russian tanks in the first two months of their invasion of Russia than they thought Russia had tanks, period, because they just didn't think the Slavs could produce tanks. And then there are other things, like when you look especially on the Eastern Front, if they got to Leningrad two weeks earlier, if they got to Moscow a week earlier, if they got to Stalingrad two weeks earlier, they would have won, because they were pushing and pushing and pushing, and those two weeks allowed the Soviets to reinforce. Hitler ordered a panzer army to go from Moscow to Stalingrad, because he wanted to take Stalingrad, because it's Stalin's fucking name. And so they went right through another army, and it took two weeks for them to sort the logistics out. Which brings us to our third and final lesson. Don't be stubborn about your attacks. Just because Max ate the last of the pirate booty doesn't mean you should waste your forces trying to run through him in Australia. If you try to fit a square peg into a round hole, it either won't fit or you'll shove it in and it will break everything. Which unfortunately 
much like almost every other Risk game we've played, is exactly what happened. Well, we could say this game oh, ended Max, with Max why? flipping the board, so. Oh, God. Of course. He flips the board. It's, it's, it's typical time. Risk. Who would have won, do you think? Oh, I think I would have. Uh, I think I would have. I would have gotten a turn in, and then I would have won. No, I would have. No, but in all honesty, I think I would have. No, I have more of a strategy than you That's guys. So would you recommend Risk to the whole family? Um, no. No. It's a brutal game. It's it ruins a, friendships, ruins relationships. It, it, it takes a tough mentality to really be in this game. It also takes hours and hours. And given the fact that I've never actually finished a whole game, I think that says a thing or two about world domination in general, which is if you want to take over the world, you don't really have all that much time to do it. So say you raise your children to be great kings and then they raise their children that way and then so on and so on. Even then it's near impossible. So the, fe the feasibility of one empire controlling the entire earth is not possible because there'd be too many revolts in too many places. I think a better way of doing it, and what I would call the most successful way, is how the Christians just Christianized everybody. You start in Palestine, you make the Roman Empire Christian, and then it stays Christian, and then after the Roman Empire falls, everybody's looking back to Rome, so they stay Christian. And then all of these Christian kingdoms are fighting within themselves, but they inevitably have to answer to the Pope, which they don't really like, which begins fights between the Germans in the papacy that essentially ruined Germany for 400 years. But you look you look at that time, and then as we move into the colonial era, the first people to most of these places outside of Europe were missionaries. Besides like traders who had been going there since the Middle Ages, the first consistent group of Europeans living in China and Japan are missionaries, especially the Jesuits. Um, Saint Francis Xavier wrote quite a bit, especially about trying to preach in Japan when they were mocking him because they said he sounded like a drunk six-year-old. But um, he kept going because of course you have to convert all the heathens. But as after the Jesuits showed up and Christianity failed, the British started selling opium and then they brought their guns and said, well, this is all ours now under the name of economics and Christ. But creating a new religion nowadays is gonna be particularly difficult. Is there anything that you think would work maybe a little better in the modern era? I think culturally, like, you could say that America doesn't own the world in quotations, but American culture is the culture of the West at this moment. And I think that's far more telling of our power within the world than any army could be. Taking over the world is one of those ideas that could fly around a bar, an elementary school classroom, or the halls of Congress. It's such a difficult task that it almost seems easy. Personally, I find it quite impressive that any one person has achieved at least a sliver of world domination. Because at the end of the day, the Earth contains over 148 billion square meters of land. And the average human takes up less than one. Thanks for listening. Things You Don't Need to Know is a Hyperobject and 3 Uncanny 4 production. It's hosted, written, and produced by myself, Ari Kagan, but if I'm honest, producer is kind of just a title I've added to my, uh, you know, list of things. Our real producer is Harry Nelson. Additional help from Shane McKean and Nuna Sharafuddin. Our executive producers are Adam McKay and Laura Mayer. The show is mixed by Nice Manners. If you like things you don't need to know, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and hit subscribe. Also, if you leave a review, I'll name one of my territories after you. Well, it looks like Harry Nelson Landia is already taken.
See you next week.